to This is Texas Wine. I'm Shelley Wilfong, a wine educator, writer, and Texas wine enthusiast. On this podcast, I share Texas wine news, interview the most important people in the Texas wine industry, and bring you the information you need to be a more informed Texas wine drinker. Thank you for joining me on this Texas wine journey. This is episode 19. This episode features an interview with Barbara Lecuona of Sibonet Cellars. And we always start with a rundown of all the top news about Texas wine. Whether you're a regular listener or joining in for the first time, welcome to This is Texas Wine. Well, this is hot off the press. Soon it will be clear which Texas wines contain 100% Texas fruit. The Texas Wine and Grape Growers Association, the Texas Hill Country Wineries Association, the High Plains Wine Growers Association, and Texas Wine Growers, which is a group that has long been committed to 100% Texas fruit, have issued a joint press release with all of the details. In my podcast with Chris Brundred and Andrew Sides, Chris discussed what he called the Great Compromise. Now they're calling it the Grape Compromise. Two bills were just introduced before the state legislature that will change wine labeling in Texas. Under current federal and state labeling laws, a wine is only required to have 75% Texas fruit to be labeled Texas or 85% Texas fruit to be labeled with an AVA or a Texas county, or it can be 95% Texas fruit if it's labeled with a vineyard name like Ready Vineyards. The proposed legislation requires that for wines with a Texas AVA, one of the eight in the state, a Texas county, or a vineyard designation within the state, all the grapes must be from Texas. There would still be an option to use just Texas on your winery's label, and under that more generic label, a producer could still include up to 25% non-Texas grapes. Roxanne Myers, the president of the Texas Wine and Grape Growers Association, or TWIGA, was quoted as saying, we are pleased that our groups were able to come to a consensus that will hopefully meet the needs of the majority of the Texas wine industry, while allowing us to command a greater share of the overall wine consumer market, not only in Texas, but worldwide. She adds that the proposed changes to the code are permissive, thus not requiring anyone to label their wines in this manner, but if a winery chooses to appellate with an AVA, county, or vineyard designation, The wine must be derived from all Texas grapes. So these changes, if they pass, will apply to all labels on Texas wines made from grapes harvested after January the 1st of 2022. Chris Brundrett, who's the spokesperson for Texas Wine Growers Group, supported similar legislation in both 2017 and 2019, but it was defeated. Chris Brundrett said, we've been working for, for a long time with industry leaders across the state to get here, many with differing viewpoints. As such, we're calling this the grape compromise. This bill is being introduced because we all agree that Texas will benefit from stronger standards surrounding the appellation of Texas wines. This legislation will strengthen the image and value of Texas as a winemaking region and passing this bill will allow consumers and wine industry professionals to support Texas wine with increased confidence. What's more, it will lead to an increase in Texas-grown grape sales in the state, which is a win for Texas farmers. I think this is great news, and soon there won't be any question about what's in the glass. There's a new tasting room on the square in McKinney. 4R Ranch Vineyards and Winery, is based in Munster, but this McKinney location is its second. 
It will serve a full array of 4R Ranch's dry, sweet, still, and sparkling wine. You can enjoy a tasting or buy a glass or a bottle. They'll also offer some small snacks to pair with their wine. And later in the spring, they're opening an, an event space next door. That makes three Texas wineries on the square in McKinney. 4R Ranch joins Landon Winery and Lone Star Wine Cellars there on the square. Wine for the People and CL Buteau are excited to announce an addition to their new tasting room. They've got a food truck that will be operating during the same hours as their tasting room. It's called Brucey, and it's a new food truck from chef and owner Barclay Stratton. It all begins on Friday, March the 19th. All the dishes have been prepared to pair specifically with Randy Hester and Ray Wilson's wines. This has all been funded with a Kickstarter. And as of press time, the project has almost completed its fundraising goal of $25,000. Abastris has a new tasting that looks delicious. It's a chef's table experience, and it's led by the in-house sommelier and executive chef, Mitchell Chirac. He is a one-man show who will be preparing and serving your food, pouring your wine, and walking you through each pour in each of five courses that's designed specifically to complement the wine. This is an experience that's offered on Saturdays and Sundays only, and it's $60 or $40 for wine club members. You'll need to make a reservation on the Abastris website. Based on what I've seen on Mitchell's Instagram page, which is The Liquid Culture, I know he'll be churning out some delicious food over at Abastris. Exciting things coming to Brownwood. Haley Fowler and Sarah Cox have a new spot in Brownwood, and it's featured in a nice article on brownwoodbusiness.com. Their company, 10 Mile Productions, was formed about a year ago, and they have secured space at the old Southern Hotel, which dates back to the late 1800s. The building was a downtown staple, and it caught Sarah and Haley's eyes because it has an existing bank vault in place. They have goals to plant their own vineyard eventually, but in the meantime, they've been acquiring grapes throughout Texas and doing small batch winemaking over the past few years. They're building up toward opening a storefront winery. Recently, they've developed their first labeled wine, a Blanc du Bois, and the next wine to be released will be a Zinfandel. The soft opening is happening very soon, and in the me meantime, they're doing some fun pop-ups. Check it out if you find yourself in Brownwood. The San Francisco Chronicle Wine Competition results are in. This is the largest wine competition in North America and one of the biggest wine competitions in the world. The judges evaluate over 5,700 wines from over 1,000 wineries, all from North America. Before I hit the highlights on who won the biggest awards, I'd encourage you to go to the competition website. The medalists are sorted by category, and you can see which other regions were in competition in the same categories as Texas wineries, and you can see how many Texas wineries medaled versus wines from other regions. So let's start with the winners in the white wine category. The Best of Class Award for Marsan went to the Bingham Family Vineyards for their 2019 Marsan. For Roussan, the award for Best in Class, went to Parasos Vineyard and Winery for their 2019. That was the reserve from the one-way vineyards in the High Plains. And the Best in Class Award for Viognier up to $26.99 went to Messina Hoff for their 2019 Viognier from the Texas High Plains. 
Here's an example of what I'm talking about if you investigate the results on the competition website. In that category, Viognier up to $26.99, that's the category that Messinehoff won. There were also seven double gold medals awarded for that category, and four of them went to other Texas wineries. So of the top eight Vianniers at this major competition, five were from Texas. That's just amazing. And FYI, there was also another gold medal awarded and three silvers from Texas. Now let's talk about red wines. For Tempranillo, $40 and above, the Best of Class Award went to Berkeley Hill Vineyards for their 2019 Reserve Tempranillo. In the category Tempranillo up to $29.99, the Best in Class Award went to Messinahoff for their 2018 Tempranillo from the Texas High Plains. In the category Barbera, $30 and over, Best in Class went to Texas Heritage Vineyard for their 2018 Barbera. This one is interesting because there were a ton of medals given out in this category. It's a huge category, but the only medal awarded to a Texas winery was the best in class. So Texas won the whole category. And then the final red wine awarded with best in class was for Alianico, and that went to the Wedding Oak Winery for their 2018 from the High Top Vineyard in the Texas Hill Country. There's another grouping of award winners. For Sweet Red, Best in Class went to Georgetown Winery for the Three-Legged Willie. For Rosé with Residual Sugar above one, the Best in Class award went to Los Pinos Ranch Vineyard for their Pink Moscato from the Texas High Plains. The Best in Class for Fruit Wine went to Georgetown Winery for their Peach. And in Other Sparkling, which is a category for sparkling wines that aren't considered Blanc de Blanc, Blanc de Noir, Rosé, or Fruit, the winner in Best in Class was Heath Sparkling for their 2017 Euphoria. Overall, there were 259 medals awarded to Texas wineries. Congratulations, one and all. Dale Robertson had a recent article for the Houston Chronicle and included Ready Vineyard's 2017 The Circle Field Blend as one of the 10 wines you should be drinking now, according to their tasting panel. Of course, the circle refers to that unique landmark in the heart of V.J. Reddy's High Plains Vineyard. It's about a two-acre plot that's randomly planted with Sangiovese, Barbera, Cab Franc, Cab Sauvignon, Petit Verdot, Tanat, Petit Syrah, and Carignan. There's at least a little of each in this wine, Dale says, and it was fermented in stainless steel tanks and then finished with 18 months of cellar aging, in 30% new French oak. The tasters say that it has lovely, fresh red fruit. It's easy drinking, but offers a nice mix of nuanced flavors. That wine is $35 at readyvineyards.com. Also in the news, there were two Dukeman wines featured in a recent Forbes article on winter whites. The first is the Dukeman Vermentino that we've talked about before on this podcast. And the second is the Dukeman Viognier from the Bingham Family Vineyards. A second Forbes article also showcases the Dukeman Viognier. This one was by Brian Friedman. Friedman names this Viognier his white wine of the week. He says it has all the high-toned flavors and honey notes that fans of the variety look for, as well as amplified acidity that's not usually associated with Viognier. His red wine of the week is the Brennan Vineyards Graciano Reserve 2018 from Leahy Vineyards. He says it's the perfect example of what Texas does well. 
He says it's bursting with life, bright, vibrant, mouth-watering, brambly berry fruit, whole cloves, cherries, blood oranges, and a dusting of tannins that frame it all and call out for a rich, well-marbled piece of beef. With air, it just keeps getting better and better in the glass. And that's the Texas Wine News. Since my last podcast on this crazy Texas ice storm, I've attended a Texas A&M webinar on the freeze, heard several seminars at the annual Twiga event that covered this topic, and also I've read a lot about the storm that they're calling Uri. And in summary, I'll just say that the weather varied pretty dramatically based on parts of the state, and it sounds like the Texas Gulf Coast may be the worst off. Now, the Texas High Plains, because the vines were more uniformly in the dormant stage, may actually be pretty good to go. The hill country has more spotty damage, but we won't really know much until bud break. We're in relatively uncharted territory. I'll link to two articles that have some follow-up, one of which was on Vine Pear, called How Texas's Historic Weather Will Affect Its Wine. And then from winebusiness.com, there's a detailed report of the two-hour webinar that the Viticulture Extension Team at Texas A&M AgriLife put together that was attended by over 300 people on Friday, February 26th, so just after the storm. And if you want to nerd out over weather patterns and viticulture, this was definitely the place to be. Look for those in the show notes. And speaking of follow-up, I mentioned on the last podcast that the Texas Fine Wine Group is hosting monthly happy hours on a variety of topics. I participated in one just a couple of days ago, and the topic for that was red wines from the great 2017 vintage. The best part of the happy hour for me was watching a fun discussion that took place between Ron Yates of Spicewood and Ron Yates Wines and Dave Riley, who's the winemaker at Dukeman. They had a bit of a fun-natured face-off on which red wines are the best in Texas. Ron Yates hangs his hat on Tempranillo, while Dave Riley is a fan of the Italian varieties like Montepulciano and Alianico. In a nutshell, Dave says that even in a bad vintage, you can make good wine from the Italian varieties. In a good to great vintage, you can make exceptional wines from these varieties. Dave feels that the early budding nature of Tempranillo is trouble and makes it more vulnerable. Of course, Ron Yates argued on behalf of Tempranillo. Now, these were arguments that you've likely heard before, but it was sure fun to hear these two plead the case for their respective favorites, and it was all in good fun. For the record, Julie Culkin of Petternalis is also a big fan of Tempranillo, while Jennifer McGinnis-Fidel of Bending Branch made a case for Tanat. The next Texas Fine Wine Happy Hour will be on Saturday, April 10th. Anyone is welcome to pick up a bottle of Texas wine and join in. Texas Fine Wine will also be selling a tasting pack for this particular event. Now here's a message from Daniel Pate of Apical, Texas. Hey, it's Daniel Pate with Apical, Texas. Travis Conley and I have a new podcast called Republic of Vitus. We'd really appreciate it if you'd give it a listen and join in the fun. Check it out if you want to hear deep dives in the operating side of vineyards across Texas. We cover all the fun and complicated aspects to produce incredible vines with incredible quality and profitability. We deliver the B2B facts to you so you don't get stuck in the B2C storytelling. Heed the vine and check out Republic of Vitus. It was my pleasure to visit with Barbara Lequona of Sibone Cellars. 
Last summer, I attended the groundbreaking of the new Sibone Cellars winery site just outside of Johnson City, and I've been following their story closely ever since. After attending the groundbreaking and a wine tasting of Sibone wines at Brian's on 290 afterwards, I felt like I was fully invested in the project. I enjoyed talking with Barbara about her Texas wine story, her winemaking approach, our shared love of sparkling wine, and the progress on the Sibone winery and vineyard site. Here's Barbara now. To get started, why don't you tell me where does your Texas wine story begin? Uh, our Texas wine story, and I say our because it really is a collaboration between um, me and, and my husband, Miguel. Uh, for me personally, it probably started just as a, as a young woman uh, growing up in a business world and all of a sudden being around people who drank wine. And somebody gave me a glass of wine that was actually good. It was something that was far out of my price range, uh, something I may never have tasted and uh, truly an eye-opening experience. And from that point on, I just realized that that wine was something to me almost magical, so interesting. And that just led to a, a journey of tasting wine and wine education. Um, and ultimately that led me to meet my husband through wine tasting. Um, so wine has been part of our journey from uh, the beginning. And uh, we've kind of always had a, a little dream that we could be involved in the wine industry. And, and that did happen. Um, but we really didn't know where that was going to wind up. So it's been an amazing journey, um, so much fun and so much to learn and glad that we've made it to the point that we have. Um, but for us, it really is, it's a love story. It's our love story, which sounds sappy, but it is, and just a, a love of wine. And, and quite honestly, the, the industry and all of the people, uh, you know, that's kind of what it's about for us. I know that you're not originally from Texas. And so I'm guessing when you tasted that first wine that you never would have imagined that you would be building a winery in Texas. No, I, I at that point, I was in Pennsylvania. I'm originally from Pennsylvania. Um, and I was living outside of the Philadelphia area. And, um, you know, that did lead me to take my first trip to Napa. Um, I was probably 22 or 23. So it was a while ago. And that solidified it. And I remember being in vineyards and, and tasting out there and talking to winemakers and thinking, this is just incredible. I wonder if there's a way I can do this. And, you know, back in Pennsylvania, I really didn't feel that there there was and had a, a you know, young daughter that I was raising and um, it really didn't seem possible. And when we first moved to Texas, we were living in San Antonio and uh, my husband was working his regular job. He's in marketing, uh, mostly for telecommunications companies. And uh, we, he had a gentleman in his office that was actually working on the air conditioning. And uh, Miguel's also a photographer. And he had quite a few pictures on the walls of um, wine tastings, bottles, vineyards. And that began a conversation. And uh, the electrician showed up the next day and handed Miguel a bottle of Texas wine and said, I have friends who are starting a winery in high, and I'd like you to taste their wine. You're in marketing, you do photography. They're ready to go, but they don't know how to do a website. They don't have the skills. Would you be interested in helping them? And uh, he, I remember he came home and he showed me the bottle and I went, nah, <laughs> can't be like Texas wine. I, you know, I don't know. Uh, we opened that bottle and it was 
fantastic. So uh, that's that's pretty much how we got started out here in in the Hill Country. Um, that winery was William Chris, and they had they had just started, and it was their first release of Malbec. And uh, you know, Miguel just commented this. It had a, a, a beautiful understated label. It said Malbec. It said Texas. You know what is happening in Texas. So he met with Bill and Chris and began working with them. And um, it was only a few years later that he, he quit his day job. We moved out to Fredericksburg and uh, we both just became active in, in the wine business out here. I was really volunteering a lot in vineyards, uh, cellar rat. I've, I've, I've been a cellar rat in a lot of different places uh, just to learn and to understand um, and then uh, wound up going to Texas Tech for viticulture and enology. So I, I did those courses and then said, you know what, let's just do it. So we started making wine in 2017. And uh, luckily, we, we had some good friends who were interested in becoming involved in the business as well. And with their assistance, we were able to purchase uh, property out on 290 and, and begin construction of our own uh winemaking and tasting facility. So we're really excited about that. Well, it's been a lot of fun to watch those plans come to fruition. And over the summer, I was able to come to your groundbreaking out of that space that um, is on 290. And that was the first time that I had met you and Miguel, that I had known anything about Sibone Cellars. I didn't know how to say Sibone <laughs> Cellars when I arrived. I appreciate that you have the phonetic spelling on your website. And I loved hearing a little bit about your story that day. And I wonder for folks who may not know, can you talk a little bit about what Sibonet, what, what it refers to, and then also about your label, because I love the story about your label and the photography on it. Yeah, it's um, an interesting story. And uh, we've actually put the phonetics on there because we knew nobody would know how to say it. And uh, you know, first rule of marketing is make your name pronounceable. So we broke that rule. Um, but I think in a way that's kind of what's fun about making wine in Texas too, is we don't have a lot of rules to follow. So we can, we can try different blends and we get to work with a lot of different grapes, but, uh, Simonet itself is, um, it's a love song. It's an old Cuban love song. Uh, it was written by Miguel's great uncle in 1929. Uh, his uncle was a prolific, writer, uh, musician. He was considered the Gershwin of Cuba. Miguel's uh, father was born in Havana. Um, so we had always loved that song and had always just entertained the idea if we ever had the chance to do this, that that's what we would call um, uh, the winery. Um, so the, the lyrics in Spanish are uh, talking about never forgetting the people that you love, um, the places you love, the experiences, and not to be distracted by all of the noise that surrounds us and, and to remember what's important in your life. So we um, kind of just use that as a metaphor for everything that we're doing, because we believe that wine, you know, wine is an incredible beverage, but it's more than a beverage. It's an experience, right? And it's something you can share to us. It's sharing with friends and family. It's something that brings people together. Um, I don't know anybody who's ever in a bad mood when they're tasting wine or enjoying a glass of wine. So uh, we just felt that that sort of amplified what we were trying to put forth with the wines themselves. Um, Sibonet is also a, uh, a town in Cuba 
and it has a beautiful beach. And uh, while this is a love song, I actually believe that the song was written about the beach because it was his his uncle Ernesto's one of his favorite places. Um, and of course, um, when Cuba uh, changed governments, uh, he was forced to leave. Um, and he actually uh, spent a lot of time in, in New York and, and that's where he's buried in, in Westchester, New York. Um, so just some family history and a love story and a beautiful beach. We had a chance to go to Cuba and visit in 2018, uh, quite an experience. And uh, we were happy to be able to set foot there and actually visit the town and, and see a little bit of the history um, you know, for how we named this, this winery. Uh, the label is also a reflection of that. We, we, we took a lot of time trying to figure out, you know, the message we wanted to convey. Uh, our, our story is a, is a little bit Cuban, a little bit Hispanic, but our wines are not necessarily uh, varieties from Spain. We do a little bit of that. Um, but on the label, we, we wanted it to sort of encapsulate everything that, that we were talking about. So um, we have a, a, a little line uh, towards the bottom of our label that just looks sort of like a squiggly line. Some people think that it's a, a mountain. Uh, it's actually the coastline of Sibone Beach. Um, so we wanted to, to pull that in. Um, at the top of the label, we have uh, an architectural symbol. It's, a, uh, it's called a barbed quatrefoil. And in a lot of, a lot of ways, it's considered to be similar to a four-leaf clover. Uh, so it has four sections to it. So it represents good luck for us. It also represents um, uh, the four partners um, that are involved in the winery now. Um, our good friends, uh, Marianne and Bill Wadrick, uh, are, are with us in this incredible journey. So we're, we're just blessed to have the four of us working together. Um, and the quatrefoil design was originally taken from uh, a church in Cuba, in Havana. There's, uh, I think it's the first, uh, I believe it's the first Catholic church that was built there, uh, Christopher Columbus Church. He was buried there for a while before his body was, was, um, was moved. And uh, we just thought it was a great framework. We wanted to use something that was an original piece of, of artwork from Miguel's photography. And inside that quatrefoil is uh, something that a lot of people think is a rosebud, um, and it's not. It's a it's a very beautiful little bud. It actually is a brand new bud break on a 50 year old Merlot vine in Bordeaux, and it's a photograph that Miguel took when he was living in Bordeaux for a year, uh, studying over there. And we were using that bud to indicate that you can have regrowth and rebirth at at any age, at any time. Uh, so again, just something that says, you know, we're, we're embarking on a completely different journey in our lives at, at, at this point, and, and, and we're really happy to do it. Um, we also use that symbolism uh, when we were naming our first wine. The first wine that we released was in uh, 2018. It was a 2017 vintage rosé. Uh, that particular rosé is a, is a GSM blend. And we were looking for a name uh, for our rosé. And uh, that, that church in Havana is made out of pink coral from the ocean. So our rosé is coral. Love it. So much symbolism and so many reflections all packed into your label and, and the wine names, too. And I do think that having Miguel as a talented photographer and videographer makes your projects the best photographed and the best documented of any 
that, that I've seen. So it's, it's fun to follow you along with you guys on your social media channels and see everything that he posts because there's some amazing photography and um, videos too. You know, he, he loves capturing that. And when, when he first started working out here doing video and photography for other wineries, that was the goal was to be able to document their story from the beginning so that they can look back and see, oh, here's where we started and here's how we've grown and progressed. And, and it really is a journey for everybody out here. We're really such a young wine region. Um, and it's been great to just, just follow the other folks and now to be part of that and, you know, work alongside with some of these incredible winemakers and growers. Uh, it, it really is a dream come true. And, he does continue to document for other wineries as well. So we're, we're, we're glad to be able to have that history and um, be part of, be part of the story out here. I think there's a, a lot of fantastic things happening here in Texas wine. And uh, we're hoping to be part of the group that, that spreads that word around so that more people are aware of that. I had heard your name and, and you mentioned that you've volunteered and been a seller rat and so forth. But I had heard, I think, on a recent teleconference or webinar that you were the hardest worker in the business, that you had learned from anybody that would, was willing to teach you something. And I think that that's so admirable. So what has it been like to learn from so many different folks in Texas? And tell me about just your educational journey outside of the classroom. Uh, you know, the... My education started really with uh, wine tasting education and, you know, really just trying to understand what am I tasting it? Why am I tasting it? You know, learning all the various classic wine regions, the the great varieties, um, the basics of how wine is made. And, you know, I think at some point back then I, I thought, oh, you know, I understand. I understand the process. I, I know what's happening here. I understand all of these things. Um, but I think, uh, you know, you're involved in wine education. The more you learn, the more you know that there's more to learn and you just keep keep going out there. Um, and those classes were fantastic. Um, I, I wouldn't trade them for anything. It's a great foundation. But when you then start working in a vineyard with, you know, Bill Blackman at William Chris, who is just a wealth of, of knowledge in the vineyard um, and you know, John Rivenberg, another gentleman who has just incredible experience growing grapes and farming, uh, you know, Chris Brundred, all, all of these guys in their vineyards, and then the growers up in the High Plains. Um, and nobody's ever going to say no if you offer to help work in the vineyard. And, uh, you know, these were, these were not harvest days. These were just you know, tucking the vines, tying them up, helping to train, pruning. Those are kind of the less glamorous tasks, but they're so important to the quality of the wine. Um, and my original intent was to have a vineyard. Um, that's really what I wanted to do. I want, to, I want it to be out there. So um, I took the uh, viticulture program at Texas Tech. It's a two-year program. And uh, I recommend it to anybody who wants to grow or even who wants to make wine or just know more about the process, uh, because it really does all start in the vineyard. Um, the best quality grapes are going to make the best quality wine. Um, and that's something you learn very quickly when you start to make wine. Um, it's fabulous to be able to stand side by side with these guys who have so much experience and um, 
to learn through through doing that. Um, once I did that, I had offered to a lot of people, "Hey, I'll I'll do anything in the vineyard and or and in the winery. Like I don't care about getting dirty. I'm happy to put a hat on, and you know I." think it's great. And everybody just sort of looked at me half sideways. Oh yeah, sure, sure, sure. You don't mean it. And I understand now why they thought that because it really is a lot of hard work and it's, it's not, you know, it's messy and you just have to put the time in. Um, and I think there are a lot of people who probably show up and realize uh, I, I really don't want to do this. It's not like just showing up for a bottling day and, and then you go home. And I finally had somebody take me up on it in 2016. Um, I had offered to do anything during harvest and I got a call, I think it was a Thursday evening at about 5 PM saying, uh, we could really use some help tonight. You know, are you still, is, is the offer still open? I said, absolutely. So I, I ran out, we worked until about one o'clock in the morning, uh, pretty much in the dark and, uh, learned very quickly how much work harvest actually is once the grapes are, <laughs> are off the vine. And then, uh, he said, hey, just show up at 6 a.m. tomorrow, and I did, and every day after that. So that was really when I understood what was involved in the, in the winemaking process, and uh, that was a great education from a fantastic Texas winemaker who is uh, as meticulous as they come, as clean as they come. So that was a, a, a great starting point for me to understand um, how precise this process needs to be in order to make a very good wine. Uh, so it's his fault. Um, I then went back to school and took the enology classes at Texas Tech, which is another two-year program. So I basically overlapped the two and finished them in about two and a half years. Um, and that also was eye-opening because you think you you have all this this education and this understanding. But um, you know, I think you know way back when the first wines were produced, they they were magic because nobody understood the science of them. Uh, once you really get into the science of them, it becomes even more fascinating. And something I never thought I would do is uh, have a lab coat and <laughs> uh, some laboratory equipment, but I am embracing chemistry like I never did in high school. It's amazing, isn't it? I've never been really interested in science until I got into wine. And now now I have to go back and learn all the things that I've probably learned at one point, but have forgotten because they're not they're not skills I use on the regular, but it it's, makes science interesting. It really does. Yeah. And I mean, I think if you find something that you're really passionate about, then every aspect of it becomes interesting and it becomes easier to learn uh, just because you just, you just need to know, you need to know. And uh, yeah, I can nerd out about that for a long time. So I'll stop. <laughs> well, tell us a little bit about, the space that you are, I think it's 52 acres on 290 in Johnson City that you are preparing for an estate winery. What is going on there and what are you most excited about about that spot? Well, right now uh, we have uh, 52 acres, uh, completely raw land. So we've had to do everything from uh, drill multiple wells, both for the vineyard and also for the winery. Uh, pull power out there. Um, so it's it's been a lengthy process. Um, it's not a very easy property to work with. Uh, and it's actually why we selected it. Um, it's a great location on 290. We're right next to Lewis Wines, about four miles outside of Johnson City proper. And one of the very cool things about this property is we have several different soil types. And the property from where we face 290 
uh, goes up in elevation about 100 feet towards the top of the property. Um, so we're going to have two primary planting locations. Uh, one section is down along 290, which we have chosen to plant after we plant our first four acres, which is at a higher elevation on the property. Um, it's It's been pretty amazing to, uh, to have this property that was almost completely covered in cedar and to clear that cedar out and basically reclaim the land and all of the water that was being lost there and to actually see the contours of that property. And uh, every time we worked out there, we saw a different aspect and changed our minds many times of how everything was going to lay out. So right now I'm most excited. We have prepared four acres to plant um, and that planting is going to be happening happening in April. So we continue to push forward there. Um, we're actually, Miguel's out there today with Bill Blackman. He's going to be um, working with us and managing the vineyard for the first couple of years. So we're thrilled about that. Um, so the infrastructure is there. We're just finishing the setup of the irrigation system. And uh, we're going to be, it hasn't been announced yet, but in mid-April, after uh, a lot of the vines have been planted, we are going to be doing a vine planting and tasting event at the site um, for two days um, right after Easter. So uh, we'll be inviting folks to come out and taste some wines, some new releases, uh, get a little tour of the property, plant a vine if they would like, enjoy some live music and some delicious food and just... Uh, you know, and enjoy an afternoon at the new site. Um, and along with that, we just poured the uh, foundation for the actual winery, uh, which will be our production facility, as well as our tasting room. Um, it's all going to be together. So that's exciting to actually starting to see the structure take form. Um, we wanted to try and do as natural of a, uh, a cave system as we could out here and uh, so we dug into that hillside so that our barrels will be stored um, underground basically so we're excited about that and and we're also trying to be very conscious and be good stewards for the land uh, and the environment so we're trying to keep our, our footprint as small as possible give back to the land where we can with the vineyard um, and, you know vineyard is one of the most sustainable things that, that you can do for for land uh, the vines actually don't use that much water um, and, uh, you know, hoping to keep our energy usage down by having uh, a good portion of our production and barrel room basically underground. Um, so we're excited about that as well. And hopefully we'll have our, our tasting room uh, open later, later this year, hopefully by the fall. So we'll be looking forward to uh, welcoming folks out there. Um, and letting everybody see what's been what's been going on. Have you decided what varieties you're planting on those four acres? Uh, we are planting uh, the first four acres, two different clones of Merlot. Um, we put a lot of consideration into this. And, uh, you know, there are some folks who question the choice of Merlot for the hill country. Um, and we're addressing that. Uh, you know, we did a lot of soil sampling and testing and, and water testing and a lot of discussion with uh, not only Bill Blackman, but uh, with other growers uh, who have worked in the whole country uh, 
Fritz Westover is a, is a great consultant as well. We, we spent a lot of time talking to him and also with the nurseries that we're working with to obtain the vines. Uh, so it's not a decision that we made lightly. I love Merlot as a variety. Um, I know it fell out of favor years back, mostly because of a movie. Um, but I think it's, it's due for a comeback. And uh, we had an opportunity to, to make uh, Merlot with some other growers and uh, we're really pleased with how it turned out. And, uh, you know, Bill Blackman has also made some fabulous Merlot uh, from Hill Country vines that he's growing. So after all of that, we decided to try two different clones on those acres. Uh, it's probably the best plot that we have for the vineyard. Um, the other area that we'll be planting is, is a bigger block. It's, it can be anywhere from 10 to 14 acres. And that, will be the section down along 290, so a little bit lower elevation. Uh, we've been tracking weather temperatures uh, over the past two years so that we know what to expect. And so far, I'm happy to say that we have really good drainage on the property, both you know water drainage is important, but also air drainage. Uh, when you've got that cold air, you want that to be able to flow off of your property and not get trapped. Um, and we only have one very small, um, portion of the land, which won't be developed for anything. Um, that's the only place where we seem to have a, a problem. You know, anything can happen. Mother nature makes the rules in farming, but uh, we're really trying to do our due diligence and make sure we're planting the right things in the right places. So for the other block, um, we have a particular fondness for Bordeaux wines and uh, really a lot of a lot of French wines. So we're thinking right now that we're going to plant uh, probably some Cab Sauv, uh, a little bit of Cab Franc, um, some Petit Verdot, and that might be it. Uh, we're, we're really looking to, to make most likely um, a single variety wine or two from the, from the estate and then also work on some blends. Uh, the big debate is will we plant any white grapes? And I would like to, uh, you know, I there are a lot of people who say I only drink red wine. Well, I drink all wine. I appreciate all wine, even if it's not something that is 100% to my taste. Uh, every wine has a place, whether it's paired with food. Um, and, and if you haven't tried all different kinds of pairings, everybody should, because you'll be surprised some things that, that work amazingly well together and it can change your mind about some, some things. So I, I would like to, to, uh, make a little white wine off the estate. So, uh, that, that might happen. And if it is, it'll probably wind up being the wrong variety. Mm-hmm. So you've got a lot of uh, decisions ahead of you. I can only imagine how many decisions. Um, but I loved when I was out there hearing about the terrace that you're planning. It sounds like it'll be just a beautiful spot to taste wine. So I look forward to visiting. Yeah, I hope you'll be able to come out. We would love to see you in April. Um, we have some, some, I think, good things planned. Uh, we're still in the planning process, but, you know, we were saying, I think, you know, wine is, is about friendship and community and, and family and friends. And uh, we're looking forward to, to being able to host people out there and, and share the wine and, and the experience of the vineyard as much as possible, because it's, it's truly an important integral part of what we're doing. Um, you know, we're, we're committed to 100% Texas wines. 
we have no plan to to have any Cibone wine um, containing anything other than Texas grapes. And some years that is more difficult than others. Uh, this year will prove to be difficult for fruit in the hill country. Last year was difficult for fruit in the high plains. Um, so uh, it is a big state. We concentrate uh, typically in, in particular AVAs. Um, we are really of the opinion that, that AVA and estate designation is potentially more important to Texas wine than just saying it's from the state of Texas. Um, when we look at countries like France, uh, nothing... Nobody is seeking out a bottle of wine from France that just says France. They want it to say Bordeaux or they want it to be from the Rhone. So it's it's regional and it's AVA specific. And we think that that's, that's part of the, the progress that, that Texas needs to make to really be able to distinguish the wines from the different AVAs because the growing conditions are, are quite different um, between the, the high elevation and the high plains the soils, the microclimates, uh, everything from humidity levels, it all makes an amazing difference on how things are grown, how they're farmed, and the resulting grapes and, and the wine that come from that. So we really want to be able to reflect that, um, you know, terroir, terroir, yes. Uh, it's it's all about that location and how you're, how you're farming those grapes. And um, we plan to, to, to showcase that. Uh, we'll continue to make non-estate wines. Of course, it'll take years before our vines are, are producing enough fruit. And even so, we don't have enough acreage there to, to fulfill the, the program that, that we want to offer. Uh, so that's, it's exciting. Um, and we're working with some other growers in some other regions of Texas. Uh, uh, there are grower partners that we're working with exclusively um, so they're doing some custom plantings for us and custom farming. And that's that's exciting for us to to be able to work really hand in hand and, and close with these other folks who um, are really putting their heart and soul into what they're doing with their vineyards. Um, so it's it, I think it's uplifting for the whole wine community and the, and the state of Texas. And uh, we're really enjoying those collaborations. Is there a certain case production that you anticipate when you're fully uh, well, where is it going to start when you open your winery, I guess? And then what's your ultimate plan for case production? Well, we started very small um, since we did not have a place to make wine. Um, in 2017, uh, great friends of ours at Hawk Shadow Winery in Dripping Springs had some extra space. Um, so we entered into an alternating proprietorship agreement with them, which we still have today. Um, and that allows us to be fully licensed as a producing winery and tasting room. Um, and we did our 17 and 18 and 19 harvests there uh, with, with Doug and his crew, um, which was a, a great way to make wine. I was able to help them with, with some of their winemaking, uh, which was a great lesson, again, because they're working with some varieties that, that I don't have a plan to work with. Um, we still have our, our 2019 barrels. Our red wines are still there aging. We'll be working on moving those out, getting those blended and bottled in the next few months. Um, so we started with, uh, 500 cases, uh, which isn't a lot. That's about, you know, 10 tons of fruit, which a lot of people thought was ambitious for our first year. Maybe it was, but it, it was, it was a good way to do it. Um, the second year we made another 500 cases in 2018. 
Um, and then in 2019, again, with the help of our partners, we were able to have a little bit more buying power. So we increased our production to 3,500 cases. So that was a pretty big jump from 500 to 3,500. Uh, also why we ran out of room at Hawk Shadow, because now we have a, a lot of wine to store and a, a lot more barrels. It's funny how you go from you know 20 or 30 barrels to 300 and some very quickly, they multiply. Um, so we had to make an adjustment last year and we uh, began working with John Rivenberg um, down at his wine incubator in Kerrville Hills. And the, the great thing about what John's doing there is it provides an opportunity for someone like me who is there every day and hands-on and, you know, making the wine, which is what I want to do. I, I need to touch it. They're like children. I have to know what's going on and, and do it. So it allows me to continue to make the wine as a winemaker, um, but also to uh, talk to a lot of other winemakers who are making their wine there or at least, uh, you know, instructing how they want their wines made. And uh, when I talk about nerding out, you know, you don't want to be there, you know, when it's 10, 11 o'clock at night and we're, you know, starting fermentations and we just get off on some tangent about, you know, what our yeast is doing and why we're making those choices. But it's, it's, it's almost like a think tank, you know, you just are able to share ideas and ask questions and everybody has different experiences. So that's been a great opportunity. And we had hoped we would be able to do this year's harvest um, we're staying around 3,500 case production right now because it's, it's really all we have the room to store. The facility and our production area are being built to accommodate about 7,500 to 10,000 cases. So that's kind of our ultimate plan is to be at, at 10,000 case production. Uh, if we go larger than that, uh, we'll have to make some other decisions, but, uh, we're not trying to be the biggest producer. Um, we want to be, you know, one of the, the best producers for us. It is really about crafting um, high quality wines out of the best quality fruit that, that we can either grow or, or work with other, other farmers and their vineyards to produce. Um, uh, we're very serious about supporting Texas wine. And I think at the end of the day, that's really, how we look at what we're doing. Um, it's, it's personally fulfilling to me to, to be engaged in this process and, and be making the wine. I know it's fulfilling for Miguel to be involved in documenting everything that's happening and um, getting our, our information out there and sharing the wines with people. Um, but it's also really about supporting the Texas wine industry. And we're hopeful that that will be successful in being part of a good part of that community um, to help spread that word and, and spread good te Texas wine across the state and hopefully outside of the state. Um, our production levels, along with a lot of other people, are so small, you really can't get it out there, but maybe a little bit at a time we can, we can spread the word. And I know that's part of, of what you're doing. It's great. And we appreciate that so much. Uh, I think your podcast and your writing yeah. has been just a great addition to the, the Texas wine world and we appreciate it. Well, thank you. Well, I think the first Sibone wine that I ever tasted was at your groundbreaking and it was your uh, sparkling rosé, which I happen to love sparkling rosé. In fact, my my name, my Peloton leaderboard name is Pink Bubbly because I'm all about the pink bubbly. 
So I do want to ask you a little bit about uh, winemaking and, and sparkling wine in Texas. And where do you think um, the demand is for sparkling wine? And what is your interest in sparkling wine as a winemaker? Where, when did you get interested in sparkling wine? Are you a champagne girl? I know your, your origins and some of your love for wine was in, in France. So tell me about that. It was, and I, I, I love bubbles and um, probably the first bubbles that I had, I'm sure they, it wasn't actual champagne. It was probably, probably from California, um, but it was, you know, made in the, in the traditional methods. So, and, and it was, it was delicious. And that was uh, that first trip to Napa that I took. One of the places that I went uh, and probably at the time I thought, you know, wine was a little bit snobby and probably bubbles were more snobby. And, uh, we visited, visited this, this one place and it was absolutely delicious. And the people were so nice. And I just realized that, uh, wine isn't snobby and you don't have to be snobby to appreciate good wine. Um, so I think from that point on, I, I always really appreciated sparkling. Uh, I too love sparkling rosé. I, that was, uh, you know, We'll take it back to our little love story here. When Miguel and I got married, that was the wine that we chose to have at our at our dinner. And, uh, you know, it was a small little wedding with just a small group of family and friends. Uh, we broke out all kinds of wine that, that evening. But uh, sparkling rosé was top of the list. So it's it has a, a place in my heart. To me, if I were stranded on a desert island, I would be, and I could only have one thing to drink, it would be champagne, uh, pink or otherwise. Uh, what's more refreshing? What's happier than a glass of bubbles? I mean, I don't know how you can drink it and not smile and just feel happy. It's it's a celebration. From the time you pull that that top off and you have that, it's, it's a party every time the cork pops. So, you know, it's it's challenging to make it. I didn't. I didn't know how long it would take for me to do it, but um, I, I found a lot in this this, this winemaking journey that uh, opportunities present themselves, and you have a choice: you either take them or you, you you turn your back on them. And I I choose to take them. And as a as a new very small winery in the beginning, we had some things offered to us, uh, whether somebody had a little bit of extra fruit or some fruit that. Uh, we had a grower who had some fruit that she didn't have a buyer for. So she offered, Hey, would you like a ton to play with? And um, it was uh, incredibly high bricks fruit. And uh, that allowed me to say, okay, what do I want to do with this? It's, it's too high. Like the, the, the bricks were too high. I couldn't ferment this down to a dry wine and, and we, all of our wines are, are dry. We don't leave any sugar in them. Um, so it was just screaming to be a port style wine. So that's what I did. And I didn't have a plan for it, but we figured it out. Um, talked to a winemaker out here who specializes in dessert style wines, got some pointers and uh, we're actually going to be bottling that. It's been in barrel since 2017. We're getting ready to, to put that in bottle. And the, the sparkling wine was kind of a similar story. Um, we were making a, a still rosé, uh, which we were making every year. Um, we had harvested the grapes a little bit early. They had this beautiful, bright acidity. It was a beautiful color. Um, it worked great as a still rosé. Um, but we thought, you know what? Let's let's try it. Let's let's see what we can do with this. So we actually bottled it. Uh, we bottled some of it as a still rosé, and as soon as we finished bottling that, we were growing. Um, a, a, a secondary uh, yeast. Um, 
so that we could inoculate the rest of that, that base wine. Um, so we finished bottling that still wine. We uh, restarted the fermentation and the, and the rest of the wine that was left immediately put it in bottle and uh, laid those on their sides with a crown cap and let them age on the lees uh, for about six months. And uh, we had some other decisions to make. Um, I enjoy a, a nice pet nat as well, which is a little bit more rustic in style. And uh, we call this wine Petiant. We can't call it Champagne, obviously, because it's not from Champagne. Um, but it is made uh, in the traditional method. But uh, we pre-filtered the wine. Um, this the still. Uh, the still base wine was was filtered, so that that was nice and clean. But we did decide to leave uh, leave it on the on the lees in the bottle. So uh, each bottle is continuing to age with uh, a little bit of of the yeast in there from that secondary fermentation in bottle. Um, I'm very happy with the uh, with the bubbles that that came out. You know, we were a little worried. We were doing all of our calculations to try and, and hit the right levels so that we have enough bubbles and we don't explode a bottle because that would be bad. And, uh, you know, mm -hmm. I remember trying those bottles like every month I would, I would pop one open just to see what was happening. And, you know, early on I was like, Ooh, like maybe this isn't really going to be bubbly enough, but, uh, we, we got there. I think we did the calculations, right. So, um, we're really happy with how that, how that, that sparkling turned out and it continues to evolve uh, in the bottle because, because it's still aging on the lees. So it's, it's fun to taste it, uh, and, and watch, watch the wine evolve and, and, and see how it goes. And I've liked it every step of the way. So I'm excited to do it again. Uh, we did not make a sparkling last year. Um, the grapes that we would have, um, harvested for that wine, uh, were just not available um, due to the the issues that we had in the high plains from the freeze in 2019. Um, but this year we do have a plan uh, to make another another sparkling. Um, not sure if it's going to be a rosé. We might do a white and a rosé. It's it's going to depend how how things go during harvest. So some of these decisions are are pretty much game time decisions. Uh, we'll decide as we're harvesting the fruit what we think the, the quality is of the fruit and, and how, what winemaking process is, is best for it, because we're really interested in, in making the best quality of, of anything that we do. So um, we always have a plan. That plan always changes. <laughs> we adapt as much as we can. Well, especially with the crazy weather. I'm yeah. You just do what you can. Yeah. I've heard some wineries that have, you know, a track record of, 15 or 20 years of wine clubs say that every year their wine club expects that you're going to make these certain wines and, and the grapes may or may not be in the same quantity as they were in the past. So, so uh, I, I see that you have introduced a wine club just recently. And so I hope that uh, your wine club is ready for what may come, right? Because it seems like people shouldn't have their heart set on just one thing because the weather may not cooperate. No, it, it doesn't. We've, we've tried to structure, and this evolved a little bit over, t over time. So, you know, once we made our first rosé, that was coral. Um, and our first wines were all Rhone, uh, Rhone blends or uh, single variety Rhone wines. Um, we're continuing that program and we have some, the first wines that we've made, we will always make they may not always be the exact same percentage of blend. Uh, we have our first white is called a hot shot. 
um, and that is a, a Zerone style blend. It, uh, the first one was Viognier and Roussan because we couldn't get Marsan that year. Um, but in, in subsequent years, we were able to get Marsan, so we've used all three. Um, we're also going to be releasing from 2019 a single variety of Roussan. Um, so that's, that's a program that will continue. And it, it, the other thing that I think is great about wine, we're, we are not a wine manufacturer. We are not a huge business making hundreds of thousands of cases of wine. Uh, we're not striving to make the exact same wine every year. It's not a recipe that we're using. We are trying to allow the wines to reflect the terroir, where they're grown, how they were farmed, and also the weather. And that's one of the things about wine. It's it's not just the fruit and drinking it. There's there's a history to wine. You know, you can open a bottle from, you know, 2001, 2012, 2017, and it can take you back to that year. What was happening in that year? Uh, what was the weather like? Um, and especially for us, you know, you go through harvest. I can tell you anything that happened in 17, 18, 19, because you live it and you can taste that in the bottle. And I think that's important. And, you know, that's, that's part of what wine is. It's to show where it's made, what, what was going on in the vineyard that year. We can't control the weather. We can't. If it's a cooler year, uh, if if we've lost fruit, it's going to be a smaller vintage. Uh, 2019 in the High Plains, uh, we had that that freeze event uh, that was crazy in October. Um, I was up there during the day. It was 90 degrees and it dropped below freezing that night. Um, we were still harvesting. There were still grapes on the vines. Um, so that that was tragic. That was tough for them. They've weathered this cold snap, our little snowmageddon incident. Um, that was much better for them there than it was here in the hill country. Um, their vines were st still dormant. They're behind us there. Um, they had snow as opposed to ice, which acted, you know, much like an insulator for the vines. So, so far, you know, jury's still out. Uh, it's going to take a few more weeks or a month until we can actually assess everything that happened, but they seem to be in pretty good shape. So even with that freeze event in 2019, the, we had a lot less fruit. Um, the vines were uh, carrying a lot less fruit to ripen. And what we found almost across the board is that the fruit was exceptional quality in 2019. So even these negative things that happen can actually come out in some, some beautiful fruit and beautiful wine, uh, just a lot less of it. <laughs> so we are trying to balance, you know, those club offerings. And, uh, you know, we have a Travis, which is a red rum blend. We'll always make Travis. We'll always make Hotshot. We'll always make Coral. Um, and we have a Quattro Rouge. Rouge, which is a, a four red blend. We'll always have a Quattro Rouge. Um, we'll do single variety wines and uh, we'll do Bordeaux blends. And um, But we're always going to be open to experiment with something else and have something new to offer as well. I saw a quote on your website that I liked and it's this, short of having a baby, planting a vineyard is the most optimistic thing you can do in life. And I love that. So I'm, I'm hopeful and optimistic about the future starting in April for you guys when you'll be starting that planting. And I'm so glad those, those little baby vines weren't already in the ground when we had Snowmageddon because that would have been a lot to tolerate. Yeah. 
Um, is there anything I haven't asked you about that you would like to, to mention or let people know about you guys or your new project? Um, I, I think I'd just, again, like to say thank you for, you know, allowing me to, to talk to you about this. I'm, um, very excited about the things that are happening in Texas wine as a whole, and especially out here along uh, Wine Road 290. Um, we're excited to uh, be part of a group of fantastic winemakers that are out here in the Hill Country, and uh, we're looking forward to having the club open. We just launched a brand new website, which allowed us to open the club up um, and allow for uh, pretty easy online ordering, and we can now ship to everywhere in the United States that allows wine to be shipped. So we're excited about that. Um, so we have a lot more availability. We've got some new releases coming out. We'll be uh, bringing those out in April when we do the planting. And, uh, you know, watch for some announcements uh, for what we're going to be doing out there and invitations. And would love to have everybody come join us and, and celebrate a little bit of uh, Texas wine. Thank you, Barbara, for sharing the Cibonet story. I can't wait to see your dreams come to life. I love the spirit with which you, Miguel, Marianne, and Bill approach wine and life. In the show notes, I'll link to Ernesto Lacuona and Placido Domingo's song Sibone, performed with the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. There are two main ways to get in touch with me about the podcast. You can email texaswinepod at gmail.com or leave a voicemail at 802-585-1286. Maybe I'll share your comment or question on the next show. And don't forget to follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. The handle is at Texas Wine Pod. Remember, all the show notes for this episode are at thisistexaswine.com. That's where you'll find the links to all the news stories and press releases that I shared. While you're there, you can also sign up for the newsletter and click the Support the Podcast tab and see how you can buy me a glass of Texas wine. Big thanks to Texas Wine Lover for helping promote the podcast. Texas Wine Lover is the website to visit whenever you have a question about a Texas winery or a Texas vineyard. That web address is txwinelover.com. Jeff Cope has been operating Texas Wine Lover for 10 years now. Cheers to that. Thank you for listening to this episode of This is Texas Wine. I'll be back soon with another episode. Cheers, y'all. Cheers, y'all.